Welcome to the College Scoops Podcast. I'm your host, Moira McCullough, and today we are talking with Jake Horn about the power of mentorship. It's a it's a relationship, and right. a relationship built on trust, and it's a relationship that is challenging the, the ideas and the thinking of these kids. This is the College Scoops Podcast, and I'm your host, Moira McCullough. We focus on everything college-related, from the admissions process to where to eat, stay, and explore on and around campuses. Our guests include founders, educators, authors, and experts in the college space. Join us as these experts share their knowledge, experiences, and lessons learned to help you have stress-free, informative, and tasty college journeys. Whether it's your first or last child going to college, or you're just interested in going to a college town for a game or meal, we've got you covered. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the College Scoops podcast to get the inside scoops on everything college-related, and leave us a review. Thanks to all of our sponsors, partners, and the entire College Scoops ambassador team for helping us bring valuable content to our community. If you would like to support College Scoops as a sponsor, please head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash college scoops and sign up as a sustaining listener, insider, or deluxe sponsor. We have exclusive benefits for our members, even a College Scoops care package. Originally from Boston and schooled in the independent school world, graduated from Harvard and completing master's programs at the University of Harvard and Trinity College, Jake Horn founded several ventures in the renewable energy field spanning from the late 1970s through mid-1980s, focusing on renewable energy public policy, small-scale hydroelectric, and windmill energy design and production. Jake shifted into the world of secondary education in the mid-80s after realizing the power of teaching and the unmet needs students have, especially secondary school students who have oodles of questions about ideas, life and purpose, and minimal opportunity to pursue inquiry with older experience and thoughtful mentors. This evolved into Jake's lifelong passion of working with high school and college students, initially as a secondary school college advisor, admissions director, and United States history teacher and student advisor. Jake founded the Student Compass in 2006 as a mentoring and resource organization designed to support students in future planning, developing self-awareness, self-agency, forward-thinking habits and planning, and informing strategies to act on those plans. The Student Compass is committed to supporting young adults and becoming better prepared to take on the new complexities and challenges so rapidly and dramatically transforming this new world. Welcome to the College Scoops podcast. Jake, thanks so much for joining us today. Amore, my pleasure. This is great. I'm looking forward to this. I love the background. I'm a book person. So if I get distracted, it's because I'm reading your books in the back, trying to figure <laughs> out what my next list is. They turned around back, backwards. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It is such a busy time, but I found you because I read an article on Thrive Global, which I really enjoyed. And there was so much in there I can't even begin to address. That's going to be like a five podcast series, yeah. you and I, because um, it was just so rich with so much information. You were in renewable energy, public policy, hydroelectric windmill energy design. I mean, all of that. And then you were in education. And I was right. just intrigued. And now you're mentoring students at the co Student Compass. So what, how do you even go from that one to two to three? How did you do that? What inspired you? Well, I mean, I, it's a great question. I have always been intrigued with 
such things as renewable energy. I just think it's it's not only sensible, it's brilliant, um, it's natural. It you know it's it it fits into the order of natural order of things. And um, you know I've, I've pretty much always found that fossil fuels are pretty pretty gross uh, anyway as a as a fuel system. But in when I was in Boston. Um, I worked at the Massachusetts Solar Energy Office, and they were a bunch of young Turks. And this is in the, you know, mid to late seventies when Dukakis was uh, governor, and you know, it was like pumped. Everybody was so fascinated. But these were, you know, these were, um, you know, ex hippies who are just like in being creative, and 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 I, they, I got I got to work in this group of really creative. Uh, you know, kind of wonky but lovely pe people, uh, led by a brilliant young fellow who just had this vision, and Dukakis supported him all the way. So I, you know, was, I worked in that office for two years, and then they got closed up because Dukakis lost, and you know, like all things political, you know, it all gets swept out. I ended up. Um, moving to uh, Connecticut because they were looking for somebody to develop hydroelectric power policy. Okay, and um, I think there's a sort of sense that that if you if you are have gone to a really good Ivy League school, geez, you must be able to do anything. I had no experience with hydroelectric power, you know. I just, but I but I love to learn, and so I came and I spent a year and a half um, surveying the state. You know, looking at specific hydro sites and which were possibly developable, and in those days there were developers who would, you know, uh, develop particular sites because you could sell energy back to the utility companies. That was a man okay. federal mandate, so that was the driver behind this. Uh, and it was it was fun because I was a contractor, uh, and I could pretty much do my own thing, and I developed state power policy. Uh, and it ended up eventually leaving that and working uh, for a, uh, a metropolitan um, quasi-public-private water company who had dams and they really wanted to develop theirs. And that was really an eye-opener because it was politically pretty fraught. But um, nonetheless, um, simultaneously to this, I'd inherited a trunk. That's maybe a very long-winded answer, so I'm sorry. No, I love it. I'd inherited a trunk, a family trunk, full of letters from um, from family members for over the last 400 years. And I was fascinated. I just, all of a sudden, it was my uh, my eyes were open to this these ancestors that were, I shared DNA with, but also that I, that had lived this, these experiences some of which were very similar in terms of the, the things they thought about. You know, they fell in love. They loved poetry. They read. They were involved with politics. So they were just like me, except it was a couple hundred years ago in a different historical context. And I've always loved history. So I said, okay, I think I want to teach history. So I went to, I actually got a master's degree at Trinity College in American Studies, got a job at a school called Foreman, which is uh, in Litchfield, Connecticut. And it is really, it, in those days, in the 80s, it was a school for students, for, specifically who had dyslexia. Okay. Now, you know, who, people didn't really know what dyslexia was, but these kids were coming out of, many of them were coming out of um, the public schools, 
pretty well-heeled families, but nonetheless, public schools, and they were considered the less than intelligent individuals because they had, they could they struggle with reading, they struggle with attention, they struggle with processing. And I, of course, had no experience with this, like everything else I do. And I, I saw so on this very stiff learning curve and I started teaching history and these kids were getting it. They just were like, well, you know, it's, it, because, you, you, you know, the traditional model is you talk to them and you, they use a textbook, you expect them to read and they write. That's not the way dyslexic brains work. And so over time, it became perfectly apparent to me that this is just a completely bankrupt model. And that, but these are really bright kids. And they're, I mean, these are really creative kids. These are kids who are great in theater. They're great in the visual arts. They're great in music, you know, but if you ask them to take a test, they're lost. And so it took me a while to kind of figure out what actually kind of works. And so ultimately I ended up creating a course. I was actually, I was able to do this because I was also academic dean by that time. So I could create a course, which was a social political science course, and it was student driven, student directed. And basically I put my, the class of 10 kids I had, mixed boys, girls, young women, young men, and I put them on an island. And I said, here are your resources, you know, create a society. And so my job really was sort of as a guider and a director and sort of to moderate. But basically it was, I, was, I permitted myself and them really a year to develop a society. And every year it came out very differently. Some years it was purely a, a pure democracy and the, the allocation of resources was equitable <laughs> and wonderful and everybody was getting along and negotiating and they were compromising. And some years it was an absolute totalitarian system usually run by the boys you know, with with the girl, you know, the girls like fighting like crazy for a, a place. I mean, it was just <laughs> really interesting. But the but what I learned is, firstly, that um, the kids got were really into it. They learned more about political science and history and negotiation and the dynamics of of, of politics and 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 uh, leadership and and government than I could ever have taught them out of a textbook because they were experiencing it, they were sort of living it. And, uh, but uh, you know, on top of that, um, we were kind of looking back and forth at different models that had come up over uh, in the past years and say, how is it that, you know, this particular earlier group had come up with a, a very different, you know, uh, uh, governmental model or, or a political, cultural civilization model. And so we sort of dissected it all. And, the, and again, the beauty, this, this is kind of the, to me, it's student directed, student empowered experiential education. And, and they loved it and they thrived and they all did really, really well. You mentioned when, when you launched that program, you were academic dean. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, how many years beforehand would you have been able to change that model as it just a teacher? Like, was that hard culturally within the administration to kind of present a different model of teaching? And so it's at this particular school now, because anything that worked, worked. Okay, so you had the patience, the creativity to A, find out how kids were learning or not learning, and try mm -hmm. to figure out a, a method that would engage them and then 
bring them together as a community, right? And work yeah. to, together. Right. Well, I was, and, and yes, and I, but again, this is the nature of this particular school because, Absolutely. you know, you've got kids who just like beating their heads against the wall and, you know, they're feeling as if they have no, they're not intelligent. They have, you know, the low self-esteem. And if you're, and what you're getting back in this particular, this particular um, course was, I'm smart. I'm bright. This is really interesting. I get it, you know, and it's like, how can you not love that? But were they almost kind of like a little hesitant too in the beginning? You had to give them permission. Okay, this is the way we're going to work this lesson. And right. some students may have not believed that that was actually. Right. Well, I mean, it, with, certainly within the typical style of disciplines, it was an oddball. Right. About it's that. like, wait a minute, is he setting us uh, up? Are we going to be in the principal's office? But remember, this is an independent school. So exactly. you, know, you, you can pull this kind of stuff off without right. a lot of bureaucratic oversight. Um, the other thing is the feedback from the parents was so positive that, you know, nobody could touch, touch it anyway, you know, okay. because the kids loved it. Um, but I, but for me, it was a powerful learning experience because so, so in looking at my earlier life in renewable energy, which was a more of a macro model of doing something of, I think, of educational power and merit to this micro you know, one-on-one -on -one sort of mentored environment. Um, it just seemed to me that there's more power in that. That the working, you know, in the in the political world, you have to be very agile and skillful and ready to be frustrated a lot. Um, whereas I could work with kids directly and have a have a direct and the impacts were palpable and noticeable and and set them up in many ways to be able to go off into the big wide world feeling different at least, knowing that they had certain capabilities. Um, but it still was short of what, of course, the real educational model should look like. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a bigger story. When, when I was growing up, it was more like the Montessori model. My, each one of my kids had the opportunity to go to a, a school where it was more applied science, applied math. Sure. And it was amazing how that just resonates with some students it, and they get so much more out of it than you said a normal book with an assessment and a test and a quiz um, right. that kind of is just like okay if I read well and I have a good memory I can just knock it off and get a hundred or close right. to it and and if you ask me to go out in the world and apply that skill I'd be at totally. a loss totally. exactly so thinking about schools I mean Montessori is pretty much the the closest uh, model I think that um, that has constancy through multiple grades, okay? Mm -hmm. Because there are schools that do, you know, fourth grade, they're doing, you know, something, or they're eighth grade, they're doing something. Right. And actually, very often, it's it's teacher dependent, you know? And as soon as the teacher leaves, it's gone, you know? So, so the, pro the, you know, the problem with today's educational model, and hopefully, it'll, you know, it'll go through this massive transformation out of necessity, but really is that there, that there is this disc, uh, uh, confirmation or disformation uh, over time of how kids learn and what reinforces their learning in a scaffolding kind of model, um, K through at least 12. Because so you've got, you know, you're, you've got, I think there's a lot of interesting effort being done at the lower level in the K through um, third grade, fourth grade. Uh, and then, you know, in anticipation of the middle school, they, there's this, you know, kids start going to individual classes and things becomes, begin to get siloed. 
But before that, there's this sort of melding. It's sort of like this playground of experience that these kids are learning by doing. And they're and, and it's pretty much student-directed. I mean, the kids are just doing their thing. And the teachers get it. Um, but something happens, you know, as they're approaching this middle school and certainly as they're approaching high school, where everything is like chunked down into these in these separate silos, which have which struggle um, to find uh, shared um, shared uh, uh, threads, historical, cultural, human threads between the silos, which are very much there in in the human experience. But it's easier to teach. It's easier to you know, institutionally. That's the way it's set up, and the assessment models are set up that way too, so that if you don't teach, if you don't teach in that, in that sort of, sort of siloed model, you know, the kids don't perform as well on the standardized testing and, and the core uh, curriculum uh, set up by the state or the feds or whomever. And therefore, you know, your school fails and you're out of business. I mean, I mean, right. there's right. a lot of pushback, um, but there's no question that we're lit. We all are in this continuous thread from birth all the way through and it's and there's no you know there's no pulling off i mean it's no at least artificially there may be things that happen but but by and large it's just this flow of experience there's no reason why schools shouldn't be that way and that you know there's no difference between history math science um arts everything i mean they're all part of the human experience different ways of expression you know different ways of articulation but you know, each reinforces the other and each adds dimension and that we're stuck and have been stuck into this dysfunctional, you know, 150 year old model uh, when, you know, all we want to do is create people who could read, write and do some, you know, some arithmetic. Um, And but we're now in a place where, you know, everybody's got to have very different skills. I mean, culturally, there's a cultural vocabulary, but there's also certain emotional intelligence skills. I mean, I don't want to use the jargon, but that's what it is. It's machines can do, artificial intelligence can do all this sort of random, you know, repetitive stuff much better than human beings can do. So with, so what's left? Being able to think and be able to, um, uh, to moderate, to lead, uh, you know, to be able to, d- to give direction, to be able to be critical thinkers, because AIs don't have the capacity and, right. and technology doesn't have the capacity, at least not yet. So there's a, there's a bit, there's a significant place for human beings in all the disparate sort of things that are morphing and innovating right now. But um, these kids aren't getting taught how to do it. Well, and, and it's interesting when you talk about that model that you had where you put the kids on an island and you're like, okay, make it work. We're in a moment where it's easy to go on your phone and just text, find the text by answers, or right. we've lost a lot of those skill sets that you, you had mentioned, you know, the critical thinking, problem solving, all those skill sets that I think many years ago, we were focused on teaching those skill sets. Do mm-hmm. you think that it's with the model light that you had, and it's the success of it, both from the student's point of view, the parent's point of view, and, and the administration, you know, so I, why do you, why do you think there's that pushback? And and you mentioned in the high schools because everything is assessment driven. I think it's harder to implement, don't you? And harder to oh, assess. No, I mean we, there's there is an assessment industry 
which is enormous. It's a multi-billion dollar business. Absolutely. Right. And it's got very little to do with what's real. I mean, so the, the SAT model came out of um, Harvard President Conan's mo- uh, idea in the early 20th century that there were too many legacy st- students at Harvard, for instance, or the, any of the Ivies for that matter. And therefore, we need to, you know, they needed to bring in uh, other qualified individuals who had intelligence. And how do you, assa- how do you find those people? Well, you give them a broad spectrum test and and that brings in those, you know, those people who would not normally be discovered because they're, they weren't part of the historical legacy. Okay. Well, that worked for a while. OK, but it has since, of course, been warped into this elitist model where, if you know, you can get your kid tutored to the nth degree, taking all the AP courses they can possibly take. Um, you know, that's the track to get your kid into the thing, the hot potato school, so that they will be rich and famous and be able to buy their Maserati in year two, you know, after they graduate from college. Of course, that's ridiculous. But that's that's the that that is a residual, um, you know, affect of this completely bought in model of. The, the SAT assessments, ACT, standardized testing, which is which is proven to be bankrupt. We, you know, we have all these lawsuits or these criminal you know, behaviors by people who bought, want to buy their kids J.D. Means, you know, That's access. My, my kids were thrilled. They're like, I, is it presumptuous to assume that you didn't, didn't buy our yeah, right. I'm like, you're right. <laughs> Do you assume correctly? And, and the thing is, this is an outgrowth. Again, there's a bigger picture here, which has to do with this whole, whole business of meritocracy. And I look at, I'm a capitalist, a de- democratic meta- a capitalist who believes in democracy. And, and, but, but capitalism without some kind of regulation, you know, without some kind of, some kind of balanced oversight does what, what all the, of those kinds of systems do, which becomes perverted because of human nature, greed, power, acquisition of, of, of resources, status, identity. I mean, these are, these are, this goes way back to, you know, 10,000 year old brains. Who's on top? Who's not on top? Who gets the most? Who's the one who survives? This is, you know, this is built into the DNA of of, uh, us humans. That's why regulation is important. And, but there has, of course, regulation has to be thoughtful, intelligent, and people have, so, you know, the, so for the last 25, 30 years, there's been this, or 40 years, obviously, there's been this deregulation model and getting the whole technology world. Um, it's been almost virtually unregulated because, of course, this is where all the creative juice comes. This is where all the economy is driven. And it's enormous. And, of course, what we originally thought was going to be this sort of kind of cool, democratic, shared, you know, a universal experience with the globe has turned into this kind of perverse free-for-all, you know, where you get, you know, what what is driving it is power, greed, you know, acquisition of a position and uh, to the detriment of and the manipulation of children whose brain chemistry is completely manipulated by the by these, te- these technologies, which play on the dopamine system and the you know brain chemistry, um, and there's and th- and so therefore their ability to stay attentive, focused, not distracted, to really know what's important, what's not important, 
and all the perversities that go along with image and you know self-image, particularly with young women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, all the stuff that's happening is like madness. So, getting back to the educational model, I mean, you have, I mean, a, a perfect opportunity if schools are designed well, because they're these kids are captured for seven hours a day or however long it, it is to to think about things which they wouldn't necessarily have an opportunity to think about in the big wide world and to develop greater critical thinking skills, more discrimination, you know, reflectivity, uh, which flies in the face of let's go, come on now, you got to come up with the answer fast, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, I mean, this is, that's the crazy world we've been living in, but that's not the way the human brain works well. And, and so we've got this discontinuity. I think schools have to have to really be retool, completely retooled. And that's going to be a generational effect. Absolutely. And I think, I think to, you know, I, I see even with my own kids, this, the slivers of opportunity that they have had with a teacher like yourself who has opened their eyes. An hour has never gone by so fast, right? right. Or those experiential learning opportunities. So the work that you had done in the education field was that a natural progression to like mentoring students and, and the student compass? I had, in 1994, I'd started um, a sidebar. Well, I actually take a, a bit of a, what I would call a sabbatical from, um, from formal teaching. And I started a gap year program where I started a gap year consulting business. Uh, Back in 94, people. which was yeah. kind of new, there were, right? There were, there were two of us who were doing it Okay. in, in those days. Um, and it's since proliferated, but so I was working with students who were um, bright, really kind of driven, and generally going to really good schools. But they were, but they knew that they needed something more. They've been in school for 12, 14 years. What do you know? Um, so they really wanted to take a year off to investigate the world and have time to just think and have time to reflect. And I had this anecdotal story about this one great Rolo is his name. Uh, and I got a, an email from him. This is a long time ago when emails were like fairly primitive. Um, he was living in a tent in uh, Northwest Territories in Australia, uh, camped out next to a crocodile infested uh, lake. And he was reading um, Don Quixote. <laughs> okay. And he said, you know, I, I get it now. I mean, he had to read it. He read it in school, you know, but it was sort of a thing you had to do. It was also like reading Shakespeare, like, you know, uh, you know, Henry the fourth. So my God, it's like, I, you know, I read it, but that's because I had to read it. But exactly. now I read it and it makes so much sense to me. I get it. And I get all the sort of social uh, nuance and the innuendos and all those sort of the subtleties of it. And it's just like brilliant. And I'm like, there it is. You just had had to have time to take a deep breath, to be able to think, reflect, and how does it relate to you as a human being? Isn't that so easy though? When you think about that, when you said it, it's true. Time and just we don't have that many opportunities, or we don't allow our mind just to be. And right. and you know, I, I'll remember what a kid would say. I'm bored. I'm like, only boring people are bored. Yeah. Right. So there was, there was, I mean, I was having a wonderful conversation and my connections with Harvard, but I mean, the Harvard had a elective in those days and it may be not elective anymore, uh, course in um, 
self-reflection, self-awareness, um, you know, just to sort of like, who am I? What am I? What am I? What, what vibrates in my soul? And what do I actually really think I, I'm drawn to? And uh, I'm having a conversation with one of the instructors and, and they said they, they, one of the things they do is they plunk these kids up and they send them off to the fine arts museum and they have to choose a, you know, an object art of some sort and they have to spend six hours with it. Okay. I love that. And, right? and they sit there and they get, there's a whole, it's sort of like these, you know, phases where, you know, they sit there and they go, they look at it and they go, oh, that's interesting. And then all of a sudden it, it, it evolves into like this. Okay. You know, there's nothing else to see. Right. And, and but they, they have to sit there and they keep on looking and they keep on, you know, and, and then they begin to see the things that are in that are that the, the whatever they're looking at is trying to tell them. And eventually they kind of embrace the whole thing. And there is this idea that boredom drives creativity. Mm-hmm. If you have if you're always distracted, then you are always distracted. You don't have a you don't have a chance to let your brain do what it does best, which okay. is digest. Exactly. No, it's so true. I, I just and I just read this great book. The name is escaping me, but a visual literacy. And it was something where you look at a piece of artwork and what do you see immediately? And what you see immediately is not at all what's in the photo. Oh yeah. You miss yeah. so much of it. If I look at, turn away from your bookcase right now and I came back in 20 seconds, what would I remember? <laughs> and it's seeing what's actually there versus seeing what you think you're seeing just because you're trying to do it quick or you're not giving yourself time. Right. And, and, the, and the problem with society today is, is so full of distraction. Um, it wants distraction because it wants eyeballs. It wants everybody... And, you know, and, 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 you know, moving around and because that's how, that's how these corporations make their, all their dough. Um, and, but there's also in the culture, the sense that, it, well, if you're not actively busy, you have a dull mind and, and, um, you, you know, I mean, just think about how lawyers minds work. I mean, like they're rapid fire, they're, you know, they're on and that's what, you know, that's what, you know, business like has liked in the past. That's what law firms have liked in the past. But the really good business people and the really good lawyers and the really good MDs and the really, I mean, the sort of really good teachers take time to, to slow it all down and to think. And that's what business wants in their, in their future employees. They want employees that have the capacity to be thoughtful and creative that can reflect can adapt, that can be creative, that can think laterally, uh, that can collaborate. I mean, all these, you know, we hear this stuff all the time, but but that's what they're really looking for. They're not looking for the the individual who has the, you know, the strongest, you know, a sensible resume, you know, they want people who can actually demonstrate. And that's why it's a disservice to have a grade modeling system. You really need a portfolio system, you know, where, kids are evaluated based on what they do. Right, in terms of that gap year experience, and then as you said, looking at it from a business perspective and the gaps that businesses are finding unskilled workers coming out who haven't had the time to 
think and be creative and innovate. That mentoring scenario, like how did that all come into play then? Because the gap year, what you did way back then was so, as you said, there were only two. Right. And what a wonderful opportunity. Well, I mean, I'm still doing, I'm still doing it now. And and if I had my druther, there would be this continuity. You know, the work I'm doing mentoring with high school students who then take a gap year and build on that experience and then take it off to college. And when, when they've had that gap year experience and they've had time to practice before the gap year on a developing sense of who they are and their self-agency, they're you know, kind of creating their own sort of identity and, and understanding themselves in a way that they have a, a deeper sense of what impels them. What they're, you know, I hate to use the word passionate, but but you know what they can, what they they can see themselves spending a lot of time doing and being happy. It's this idea of thriving, and so so high school gap year, college, college. and getting the and if you're going to college, it's for the you know to the tune of a minimum of forty grand a year. You know, um, you you might as well have, make it a really viable experience. And so, which means you have to go over, go after it with a vengeance. You have to go out, oh, that's probably too strong a word, but you have to go up with, in your, in, with a sense that it's yours. Right. Only you can make it work. You have this wonderful resource. You're surrounded by these wonderful individuals who want to be there with you to help. And, and teachers, I mean, you know, instructors love to um, actually engage. They really want, they don't want snoozers in the back. They want people who are actually up there engaging intellectually with them. So, and I would tell you that on, with the feedback I've gotten from these gap year kids I've worked with, they're the ones up front. They're the ones who are engaging and they're the ones who find mentors in college because, who be, in turn become part of their network and the springboard for what happens into the future. And, and but of course, you know, it's a small, I mean, it's a small population that I work with and not that I'm the only one doing this, but but I would say that mentoring really has to be what it is. It can't be this um, online, uh, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Okay, put this on your checklist, that's it. It's a, it's a relationship and right. a relationship built on trust. And it's a relationship that um, is challenging the, the ideas and the thinking of these kids. And I love kids to say, well, what do you think about this? And I say, well, you know, why do you, what is that to you? I mean, is is it because it's going to make you a lot of money? Do you think, I mean, you really think it's going to make you a lot of money? Um, Or is it something you can see yourself doing? And how's that going to morph into something else? Because you have to always be thinking in the future as well. You can't sit on your laurels. Yeah. And when you say it, it's, I was almost going to use the word safe zone, but it's a safe zone for you to be challenged as well with your thoughts. Like you just said, why yeah. are you thinking about that? Because it will make you money. I think mentoring role is hard. It takes two. Yeah. And as much as you're giving, you have to get from both sides and, and finding that right person that you trust and that you can grow with in terms of some mentors are good for a certain period of your time. And then you're like, okay, I've, I've, I've graduated from that. Yep. Yep. Right. And then, you know, you need to pursue it, a different type of um, relationship, a different time of mentor who can further continue your growth. Well, and that's the, I mean, and and so it's just in terms of longevity. I mean, I would say the average length of time that I, that I'm with 
somebody, a student, as a mentor is three years, but I have something that I've been working with for six years. And I've seen enormous change, enormous growth. But um, but the point actually is that there's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong with seeking out people who are very willing and happy just to, to give you um, advice and direction and, and pull you into their network and give you the, you know, these, these wonderful sort of, um, you know, opportunities to think beyond, you know, the little worlds that we, you know, tend to think in and be expansive because what's coming down the pike is so massive and so big that there's enormous opportunity to do all these very, very novel, unheard of so far things. Um, but you have to be kind of open for it. You have to be ready That's for it. You can't be, and you can't be parochial. You have to be positive and upbeat and, you know, uh, you know, self-assured and also, you know, be a strong self-advocate because it's all on you anyway. I mean, nobody's going to save you except you. Go back to the word trust as well, because it's not easy. Some of the things that you hear are not going to be easy. And that's the best type of mentor too, who will help you right. kind of push you in, in, in terms of your thoughts and, and kind of force, not, not force, but ask the tough questions that you may not want to hear, but need to hear. And that right. are going but to the, help. But, but, but never is it, you know, you're wrong. It's always, right. well, you know, just tell me what your thinking is and why, right. where did that come from? Absolutely. You know, it's a little bit you know, deeper because, you know, and, and very often, you know, it, it morphs into something else. You know, because as they begin to practice thinking and this stuff isn't easy. I mean, you know, no. this is they're not trained. You know, virtually none of these kids are trained. And um, even at the best of schools, I mean, they're not. And therefore, it does take time. And the human brain takes time to uh, develop a way of thinking, a frame of mind. And that's because, the you know, the circuitry is what it is. You know, it, it needs this sort of this constant sort of input of information in a particular kind of way to and absorb it in a particular way to develop, you know, what, patterns of thinking which are helpful and productive as opposed to simple, easy, and do nothing for your, you know, future, frankly. When our kids were young, they came at you like do, 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 with questions, right? It was exhausting. Yeah, I mean, right. at all the worst times, of course, you know, five o'clock dinner, everything's going, you know, fires happening literally. And, and you're sitting there and these kids have boundless energy and intellectual yep. curiosity. Yep. And then it kind of stifled it. And right. therefore we've untrained them. And now it's all of a sudden saying, well, wait a minute, can we go back to that five-year-old self and let the floodgates open? That's exactly and right. Right. That's hard to, or it's asking permission to do that and finding the place that you can do that. Right. Well, I remember, so I mean, I remember loving art in, I went to a, a pre prep school outside of Boston and, uh, yeah, it was very traditional. Uh, pretty, it's almost like, uh, English public school. It was so traditional. It was awful, but, um, but I was taking an art class and I really liked art, but I was, you know, I, I wasn't particularly good at it, but I could have been. And the art teacher kind of looked at me and said, you, you, you can't do this. This is not something you can do. And I'm like, immediately I was like, shut down, gone. And I, uh, you know, and since one of my daughters is quite a good artist and she and I together were, you know, doing, taking art classes. And it was like, 
I wish, you know, come on, this didn't have to happen. Absolutely, because there's there is no right or wrong, as you said. It's like, and it's actually hard to say. Okay, why don't you draw? Here's the subject. Draw something, and right. the normal response was, "Well, what do you? What should it look like?" Right. Right. Or what should the answer be? Right. What, you know, right. can you give me a clue? It's like absolutely not. Like that's the yeah. point. Yeah. So look at look at Picasso. I mean, it's like <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I totally too about the whole business aspect. I went to uh, business school, and thank goodness I had that. I don't know how many years, five, six years of business experience, which had I not had that going into that classroom, being able to bring that relevant story experience to that classroom, right. um, that in itself is a whole nother, that that made it so worthwhile versus going right from school to school to school, you know, yep. graduating right from undergraduate. Right. We could have you so many times. I, I love it. I always like to ask our guests two questions, but I'm going to ask you one. Okay. And there's no right answer, just to let you know. Thank you. Good. <laughs> what do you wish you knew before you attended college? I wish I had known that it was okay to, to approach my professors and to, and to not be shy about it and just to, to ask, to, to know that they were actually there and they wanted to be there to teach, you know, to teach and work with us. Um, I guess, I mean, there's, there's so many other things, but, um, you know, I mean, that, I mean, going to the right college is is also very important. I mean, I, you know, I went to Harvard and it was like, like falling off a a cliff because everybody was so stark raving brilliant. And I was just like moderately intelligent, you know? So, you know, I really needed to have access to people who were willing to take the time. Uh, and that would have made a tremendous difference. Um, there, but there are other things. If I could go back in time and, and I think about what you just said, I did not use it. I, one, I did not appreciate the teachers that I had. I went to a, a private school in New Haven and I remember writing in my mid twenties or early thirties to my Latin teacher. Did you? And I did. And, and it was a two page handwritten single spaced. <laughs> In Latin? No, not in Latin. That I could not do. Maybe my, my sign off. But there was no way. I just, I wanted him to know that so many years later, I so much appreciate what you, what you did for me at the time. And I always say to my kids, you know, I don't want to say do, do this, but there are teachers out there who are so phenomenal and, and will right. change your life if you give them the opportunity. Yeah. Too, so. Well, yeah, and I, and I, in that regard, I mean, I, I have always been disappointed that teachers in the United States are really considered second-class citizens. It's really, I mean, professionally, it's really strange that you have this, you know, this, particularly among the elite um, or whoever they are, but I mean, that they expect good teaching. They expect right. their kids to get you know, the best, but at the same time, nobody's willing to pay the price, Nobody, uh, to, you know, to, to mm -hmm. give the, give teachers, particularly very talented teachers, who there are some wonderful teachers, you know, give them the, the social um, accolades that they deserve for putting up with and dealing with and being present. Uh, it's, I never could understand this, that, you know, Absolutely. and they get, and these parents get furious if their kids don't get it, but they're not willing to pay for that, you know, pay for that kind of level of professionalism, which they themselves in their professions ex fully expect to be paid in full 
measure. You're absolutely right. I write my handwritten notes on, on stationery Good. and bring them to those teachers after. And, and it's just to say thank you for, yep. for taking the time, for, for encouraging that curiosity right. and for showing up and, and not just showing up, like being present. But I do, you know, I, 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 I remember some very entitled parent telling me, you know, teachers are people who can't do anything else. You know, they okay. become teachers when, and it's like, and I couldn't say anything. It was like, are you out of your mind? You know, we've had to put up with your kid, you exactly. know, who's a spoiled, rotten little kid because you spoiled him rotten, you know, and we've been trying to fix and help him. And he's emotionally a mess because of you. Like, sorry, you know, you can't right. say anything. But it was no. like, come on, no. get a grip. Can you save that one person? I don't know. But at least yeah, maybe right. you can help out the kid. <laughs> right, right. That's right. Exactly. Help, one less problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> one okay. less problem. Jake, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, really appreciate it. And do ask me again if you feel inclined. It was great. This has been fun. Thank you, Jake, for a rich discussion on how our education system needs to change to embrace a more experiential approach that celebrates lateral thinking and allows students to be creative and innovative. Companies are looking for employees who can think outside of the box, who can innovate, problem solve, work independently, communicate effectively, and be a valuable member of a team. As an educator and mentor for many years, Jake shared the importance of mentorship as a means of growing, learning, and expanding your network. Find a mentor who you can trust and who is willing to challenge you and help you learn and thrive personally, academically, and professionally. You can find all of our show notes and links to the helpful resources mentioned throughout our conversation on our website at collegescoops.com slash podcast. You can learn more about Jake and the Student Compass at thestudentcompass.com. Please take a couple of minutes to rate, review, and subscribe to College Scoops. Thank you for listening to our College Scoops podcast. Our entire College Scoops team strives to make the college journey a little bit easier, less stressful, fun, and tasty by sharing all the inside scoops we have curated along the way. We would love to hear from you about topics to cover and your ideas on everything college related. Reach out to us at collegescoops.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.